Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his mercy on the reading and preaching of his word today. Almighty and gracious Father, our whole salvation depends on rightly understanding your scripture, your holy word. We thank you for it. We thank you that by your spirit you inspired without error uh, the original authors so long ago, and that that same spirit, the one you've granted us in Christ, in us, illumines for us this word. We pray that the spirit would open this word to us, grant us ears to hear and hearts ready to believe, all for your glory, all that we would receive it with joy and live by it for the praise and honor of our Lord Christ, we pray. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel 6. That's quite a bit of alliteration there, isn't it? I think I've told you this before. When I was a child, I had quite the lisp and had speech therapy all throughout second and third grade. Um, I think uh, the speech therapist there in Ohio struck out my southern accent so that my mom and dad can barely understand me, it seems. But, but I learned how to say S's rather well, so 2 Samuel 6 is not an issue at all. Is that fair, Ruth, to blame uh, some speech, speech pathologist in Ohio? Uh, okay, thank you. Let's go to God's Word. This is chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him uh, from Baala, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, who uh, was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving uh, the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez, Uzzah, to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. 
And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, uh, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is God's word. This whole chapter is God's word and it's true. I wanted us to read the whole chapter because... uh, as, as, a, as a literary unit, there's much that holds it together uh, from beginning to end, from David setting out uh, from uh, Abinadab's house to uh, his interaction with Michael, his uh, estranged, uh, difficult wife uh, at the conclusion there. This chapter that we've just read, 2 Samuel 6, is packed with weighty matters. It's full of emotional extremes, and it reveals to us, once again, a vision of our holy God and what he thinks of his commands regarding holy matters of worship. Simple, simply put, God thinks well of what he says. He says what he means, and uh, here's an example of how he interacts with those who have disregard for it. We see ecstatic joy. We see joyless scorn. We have careless disregard and death alongside God's free grace being lavished on an unsuspecting soul. We see David's celebration and joy meeting, it meets twice with unexpected barriers, divine judgment, and human ridicule. And so today we'll begin this chapter and start our consideration of the first half or so of this account. And actually it's going to be a lot less than the first half, but that's okay. We're, we're, we'll, we'll get to it all here. The Ark of the Covenant's uh, journey into Jerusalem mirrors the earlier journey of the Ark um, that we see in 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 7. It's been several years since we preached on that, but just a reminder that early part of Samuel, the earlier story relates how the Ark was carried into the battle of Aphek with the Philistines. Israel lost the battle, lost the house of Eli with the death of his two worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And most importantly, Israel lost the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And so if you remember, after a troubling season of exile in the Philistine cities, that is trouble for Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, uh, not the Lord and his Ark, they were doing just fine. Um, The Philistines had, had enough of it. The Philistines wanted to rid themselves of this troubling Ark, and they returned it on a cart where it came up uh, into the possession of to Abinadab's house in Kiriath-Jerim. And this is where the ark remained all during the rest of the time of Samuel, Saul, and now into the 
early years of David's reign, though uh, Bible scholars have a hard time locating when this actually occurred within David's reign, but uh, somewhere before the end, but not immediately at the very beginning because it took time for him to capture Jerusalem and all that kind of thing. But um, some 30 or so years of Samuel's ministry as, as the prophet and priest, judge of Israel, Saul, 40 years as king, and probably 10 or 15 years at least of, of David. It's, it's been sitting here in Kiriath-Jerim for a good long stretch, for more than a generation. We have here the, in the earlier account that it comes into the house of Abinadab, a priest who's watching over it, and it's his sons, uh, Ahio and Uzzah, who are involved with transporting it further into Jerusalem. So there's the ark. Joshua 15.9, by the way, identifies for us that Kiriath-Jerim is the same as the city mentioned here uh, in, in verse 2, Bale Judah. Um, it's the, the, Joshua 15.9 tells us they're the same place. So we know we're talking about the same Abinadab. We're talking about the same city. We're talking about the same ark. But instead of going back to Shiloh or wherever the remnant of the tabernacle was, which, by the way, seems to have been sort of lost in the in the fog of time and history, the ark is coming to Jerusalem. As I've been pointing out in the last few weeks, this section of, of 2 Samuel is, is developing for us a way of Christ as, or, or David as the king appointed by God, anticipating the ways in which he's a king as a type of, of a future king. We see much of that happening here. And so actually bringing the ark to Jerusalem ought to focus our attention to say, what's up about the ark, and why is it, or how is it pointing us to this future hope of, of God meeting his people in Jerusalem? And uh, we see, if you know the rest of the story, you know, eventually the temple is built there in Jerusalem, uh, not under uh, David's leadership, but under his son Solomon's oversight. But we'll get to that part of the story later. It's all about uh, what God's doing. It's a statement about worship, about uh, what our God demands in worship. So we need to ask as we begin, uh, why does this little box matter so much? Uh, it, it, it has intrinsic value uh, with all that gold covering it inside and out. Uh, the lid itself had the mercy seat on top of it and solid gold cherubim, so there's a lot of gold there, so maybe it's valuable that way. Uh, with Those cherubim with the wings stretch out across the top of it. Um, but the value of the ark wasn't in its materials. Its value was from the Lord who, who met his people there through the priests and through Moses. Um, it's pretty amazing that this box that's just over three feet long and about two, by, two foot by two foot on its end measurements, that's, a, that's all it was, is this important central feature of not only this part of the story, but of the, of the, of the whole of the worship that God gives to, to us. Listen to Exodus 25. Now, this is the Lord speaking to Moses on, uh, on top of Sinai, giving instructions about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. 
And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That's the, the ark in its inception as God's directing Moses about it. Beginning in Exodus 26, um, uh, or 25 there, the Lord revealed to Moses the plans and the details of the whole tabernacle system, its furniture, its utensils, the tent and curtains for the courtyard, and the priestly garments. And the first item that the Lord reveals, indeed the very one that's most precious, is the Ark of the Covenant. God describes the, the construction of the tabernacle, as it were, from the inside out there in Exodus. Because he starts with the place that is most central to everything which is where he meets his people. And it serves a number of other functions that we're going to see here in just a second. It's, it, as the tabernacle goes outward from it, all sorts of wonderful things kind of point to that. The, the, the material of the Holy of Holies is all gold. The, the inner furnishings inside are gold. You get out into the courtyard area and you start having uh, matter, materials of silver and then further out of bronze. Um, and so on, but the ark is this central, central object here in, in the system of worship. Um, by the way, did you notice that there are rings and poles in the mix? God included handling instructions as well. He not only gave instructions about how to build it, he inspired a couple of men to help uh, Moses with the actual execution of the artistry of constructing all of the tabernacle furniture and utensils and tent and all that, including the, the ark. But he also gave handling instructions. The Lord intended the ark and all the rest of the tabernacle to be carried by Levitical priests. The family of the Kohathites were set apart in particular for transporting the ark as well as the other temple furnishings. Uh, they, they, they had spe special uh, instructions for how they were to do it. You know, it's interesting, the, um, the ark is uh, part of this, this whole system that was meant to be portable. As the people of God in the wilderness wandering around, the Lord would lead them and literally uh, arranging camp, the, the tabernacle, the ark itself is midmost in the, in the camp's arrangement. And the priest, when they would take the, you know, break down camp, everything's wrapped and stored and kind of undercover, and you get this army of Levites who would carry all of it to wherever the Lord was leading them next. Um, so what does the ark represent to Israel? Here's what Moses says in Numbers 10. Uh, he said, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of thousands of Israel. The ark signifies the Lord's presence. 
his, his being with his people. The ark wasn't just a box that held stuff. It was, it was meant to remind Israel that God was with them always. If it signifies the Lord's presence, as one, one person simply asked, uh, one, one commentator asked, what sort of God does it imply is present with us? The ark highlights several aspects of the Lord's relationship to his people, um, not featured here in the Exodus account, but later in, in Numbers, we're told that uh, Moses was instructed to put an urn of the manna that uh, God had been feeding uh, his people in the wilderness. So the ark points to the Lord who provides and sustains his people with heavenly food. Uh, also, Aaron's uh, bu- uh, branch that budded was put into the ark. Uh, again, pointing to God's uh, care and pointing to who his priest would be. Uh, but on what we've seen in Exodus, there are three other points, that in particular I think it, it, it is important for us to see. The ark reveals the Lord's rulership over Israel. Uh, David calls the ark the Lord's footstool in 1 Chronicles 28.2, uh, there as he's getting ready to gather the materials for the temple project uh, later on. Uh, kings sitting on thrones rest their feet on footstools. And the ark isn't the throne of God. It's far too small. The ark is simply the place where the sovereign rests his feet, enthroned over all the earth. And so the ark is a visible picture of God, as it were, alighting himself with, on his feet right there to rule over his world. It's, 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 it's a symbol of his, his authority. The ark points to the provision that God makes for us, it points to his rule, and it points to reconciliation. As, as we've seen already, the ark, specifically the mercy seat that sits on top of the ark's lid, was where the high priest once a year offered the blood of sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He'd go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood because the Lord had instructed him to. He said that's where uh, he would deal with the sins of his people and for one year at least push off the judgment that those sins deserved. One more year. One more year. Look at Leviticus 16, verses 14 and 15 to see uh, what the priests would do there. The ark points to the reconciling, redeeming work of the priest on behalf of the people. And finally, the ark represented the Lord's revelation of himself, containing the set of uh, the stone tablets from Mount Sinai. We read about that there in Exodus. The Lord himself instructed, but, but a copy of, of his word, his testimony, into the, the, the ark. The very law of God was in the ark. The, 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 it, it visually reminded in this rather spectacular way that God is a God who has spoken and revealed himself, and he's one who's given to his people all that they need for life and godliness, if they would but obey and listen. That God also met Moses there at the ark, giving him further instructions for the people. And remember, every time when, the Lord, when Moses came off the mountain from speaking to God, or when he came out from the tabernacle, having been before the Lord, uh, before the Holy of Holies, or before the ark, he also came out with his shining face. But it, was, it pointed to not just the glory that fell onto Moses, but the reality that God was revealing himself to his people through his servant. So the ark was precious. The only problem is Israel often seems to forget that. 
And forgetting the ark, it actually was saying Israel forgot who God is. The commentator Davis notes, he said, all the hubbub in Kiriath-Jerim really matters. By bringing the ark to Zion, David is saying that the Lord's presence can no longer remain, so to speak, on a side rail. Um, that is what, uh, <laughs> it was just, Kiriath-Jerim is just out in the, it's about eight or nine miles away from Jerusalem, but it's not in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem and, and the ark in it needs to be a central focus in the reality of David's kingdom. The worship of the Lord, this ruling, reconciling, and revealing God must be at the heart of Israel's life. The ark in Jerusalem proclaims that the majestic, pardoning, speaking God is in the midst of his people. And so it really is something of wonder that we see God endorsing and validating David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. But what's gotten us to this point, though, as we... we see this movement happening. The, the, the reality is, it's taken us a long time, it seems. Second Samuel kind of has this delayed aspect of when will David get to the throne, and now that David's on the throne, when will David actually start r- ruling over Israel from Jerusalem effectively, and what's going to happen with uh, the worship of, of God. And so these challenges and these crises that David and Israel faced in getting to this point just you know, look back at what we saw last week, David defeating the Philistines. It's battle after battle. There's always something, it seems. Um, the reality is all these troubles pale in, compar- in comparison to having God with them. It, it, the, David's joy is expressed because God is with them. One commentator observes, says, they do not thrive by knocking off Philistines, but by seeking God's face. And the evangelical church uh, easily loses sight of this. We can always dredge up more adrenaline because of the latest moral or ethical or social or cultural or political emergency. Crises may stimulate us to action, but they do not sustain life. The church must never look to the latest cause for her life. We cannot ignore the enemies outside the city of God, but we must not be absorbed by them. War must not efface worship. The real question is not who is against us, but who is among us. And, and that's what, what David was aspiring for, and yet the picture we see is that it seems like a whole bunch of folks here forgot who are we dealing with, who is in our midst, the living God. So do you see the importance of the ark? Do you see how Christ fulfills every aspect of the ark's picture for Israel. Christ is the one who provides. Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, is the very fulfillment of the ark. And so Christ is our prophet who reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Does the ark speak of the Lord's reconciliation? Of course it does. So Christ is our priest who brought his own blood into the sanctuary. And even as Hebrews reminds us and instructs us, that these things were but shadows of the, of the real in heaven. And Christ is the great high priest who offers himself where? The heavenly, perfect, real ark. His blood ministered as the sacrifice for us. And does the ark as Jehovah's footstool proclaim his rulership? And so Christ is our king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this Old Testament furniture that so fully speaks of uh, the Lord should as fully point to Christ uh, because in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form, Colossians 2, 9. 
That's the setting. David bringing the ark from Baalah, Judah, where it's been residing in the household of Abinadab. And then we see trouble. Wow. I'm going to get even less into the text than I thought. That's, that's all right. Um, let me highlight a couple things. What's, what's right in front of us is the Lord breaking out against Uzzah. A couple things to put into perspective. That word, the root word, you, you see it actually where uh, the place is renamed uh, Perez Uzzah down in verse 8, the Lord breaking out. That root in Hebrew of the Lord breaking out is the same Hebrew word that was repeated back in chapter 5, that first battle where the Lord broke out against the Philistines, that first attack, uh, and he washed away the Philistines as if in a flood. That's the same word here. God broke out against the Philistines, and God broke out against Uzzah. It, what's, we, you get a sense that David is okay with God breaking out against his enemies. He's a little more, uh, there's a little bit of uh, challenge here when the Lord's breaking out against his man, Uzzah. Who are these two, Ahio and Uzzah? Well, they're the ox cart drivers, but they're not just the ox cart drivers. It, the text tells us that they were sons of Abinadab. These are men who grew up with the ark in their household or in their area here, and they were likely priests. They were likely Kohathites. They were likely men whose family had already been charged with the responsibility of properly carrying and conveying the ark of the Lord. This wasn't some uh, mistake out of ignorance. But it was a grave mistake, wasn't it? For all the ways that we're, we're, we're struck by this, um, this, it, 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 well, Uzzah was the one who was struck. The, what's, what's challenging about this is to see that the Lord brought his judgment against one who knew better. But I would actually suggest that Uzzah wasn't the first one to make a mistake. If we were to look at this, and the, the, the emphasis is, is it's repeated twice for us, what's the nature of this cart? It's a new cart. I think there was, there was an awareness that moving this holy vessel was, was of such import that it needed to be new. I think David, in giving the command to move the ark, likely provided this new ox cart. That's what's appropriate. The problem is we see no, uh, no correction from uh, Abinadab's house. We don't see anybody answering back and suggesting... King, we love what you're going to do. This is a great plan. God's already given us instructions about how to do this. The ark has rings on it. It's designed to be carried by, uh, with poles by men who are qualified and set apart for this very thing. We hear nothing of that. It's simply put on the ox cart. I think the thought is, ah, oh, that'll get us there quicker. That's an eight or nine mile journey. That could be a bit of a challenge carrying a a box. Now, again, it's not a huge box, but it is covered in gold, and the, the lid's solid gold. That's got some heft to it. Um, we're not told any of the rationale that went into it. Was it simply easier? Was it, um, but, but the ox cart is new and shiny, so it's, you know, it makes it kinda, that makes it special? We don't have any of that. It's just we know that it's out of conformity with what God had instructed. The instructions were clear. We read those in Exodus. The people of God knew his instructions. They forgot them. 
they disregarded them. They, they set them aside. What's interesting about this is there's nothing in the text as well that speaks to Uzzah as one who despises the Lord or who, in, in, in seeking to dishonor the Lord, put his hand out. I think we read that Uzzah is a man who was earnest. I think he was genuine in his concern. His error was he didn't follow God's word. And sincerity, earnestness, good intentions are not what pleased the Lord. Obedience does. We're going to stop here because we're going to come to the table. I'm going to leave it as at least a lingering thought for us over the next week or so as we kind of develop this. I think we need to come to grips with this in part that God dealt with Uzzah with such severity to point for us something of how to understand his holiness, his character. Again, we're not, this isn't Uzzah, Uzzah as an evil person who uh, despised the Lord, but Uzzah was someone who did not actually care for the Lord's ways the way the Lord wanted him to care for them. He disregarded the Lord's instructions. And our English text makes it a little difficult, but to point out this, that David was angry. The, most English translators have it as angry was because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Um, it sounds like God is ang- or that David is angry at God. I think the Hebrew actually points it more of a different way, that David is actually angry at Uzzah. David, I think, expected that Uzzah and Ahio would have told him the right and proper way to do this, and to, that Uzzah, his response of simply innocently seemingly trying to keep the, the uh, ark from falling over out the back of the ox cart or whatever it was, um, David's angry that Uzzah and Ahio should have said, King, this is how we do it. We'll come back next week and continue to look at this. Uh, lingering questions are this. David is celebrating in both vignettes, or both panels of this uh, presentation, right? Uh, both that end in the, the ark being touched and uh, in the end where his, uh, his wife, Michael, scolds him. It's pretty interesting that the response to worship uh, reveals a few things about it. We'll come back to that. Above all, let's rest in this. The ark matters because it points to Christ. It points to Christ in one of the most significant Old Testament ways we can imagine. And we ought to treat our Savior according to his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we rejoice in your kindness and mercy and grace that you lavish upon us. We acknowledge that we are so prone to imagining that our sincerity is what you want. But Lord, we ask that you would give us faith that would trust you, that would rest in you, and that would grow in delighting to obey your word. Lord, I acknowledge how how easy it is to know so much of your word and to to so easily let it slide into the, the realm of not really paying attention to it. We thank you for the forgiveness that's available to us in Christ. We thank you for the abundance of mercy in the face of all of our 
transgression. And we long for that day when our faith will be made sight, when these frail bodies will give way to the glorified, resurrected bodies you have for us, where our worship, which still feels like it's on this side of uh, types and shadows that we worship what we know, but to worship you face to face is what we long for. To be arrayed around the very throne of the living God as your people for all eternity is what we long for. But to bring us there, Father, we pray that you would work in us all that needs to be worked in us, conforming us to Christ, granting us grace, helping us to live day by day for your honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.